Good morning. Now, my name is John Carrius. I'm one of the elders here. And if you're a regular attender or a member, you know that uh, Adam's not preaching today. So a couple of thoughts may run through your mind. One is, shoot, he's not preaching today. And the other is, yay, we're going to get out early. <laughs> so I have this reputation of being short. And hopefully that won't be too short. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we, we praise you for who you are. God, you are the God of the universe. You are our creator. You are our sustainer. We come to you as sinners seeking forgiveness. God, we know that that's provided in the person of Jesus, and we thank you for that. God, I pray the things said this morning, we glorify you, that you keep me free from error. And let the words that are spoken from your word be true and in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to start the sermon this morning by a couple of test questions. So first off, think in your mind, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to take hands or anything like that, but what is the great commandment? Think in your head, what is the great commandment? All got an answer? Well, the great commandment is Jesus gave this when he was confronted by the Pharisees. A lawyer came up to him and said, trying to trick him, teacher, what is the great, greatest commandment? And Jesus responded to the teacher. He said, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Well, what is the Great Commission? If that's the Great Commandment, what is the Great Commission? I think we tend to talk more about the Great Commission than we do about the Great Commandment. Sometimes we get them confused and we think that the Great Commandment may be the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? Think about it. You all have an answer? Well, Jesus responded just before he ascended to heaven. He said, he came to him and he said to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the very end of the age. That is the great commandment. Well, when I was reading this passage that we're going to talk about today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it came to my mind is the great commandment is to make disciples and one of the problems we have is, do we know what a disciple is? We better know what it is if we're commanded to make disciples. And you, and you think about Jesus' ministry, we know that there were how many disciples of Jesus? Well, there's a bunch. We know the 12, but really they were, they were apostles. There were 72 that were sent out to, two by two to, to go to town to town to prove to proclaim the coming of the kingdom. Well, are there disciples today? Yeah. So what's a disciple? Did anybody pay any attention to the words over the church coming into the door? Anybody knows what they say? Well, that's the mission statement for River Valley Community Church. The mission of River Valley Community Church is 
to lead people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. So that's a good definition of a disciple. Fully developed followers of Jesus. So if that's a disciple, what's discipleship? Well, I was with a group in college called the Navigators, and their claim to fame in Christian organizations, they focused on discipleship, and this is their definition of discipleship. A disciple is someone who believes in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, intentionally learns from Him, and strives to live more like Him. Discipleship is a widely used word to describe a journey of spiritual growth. This growth happens as a person comes alongside another to witness to them, pray with them, study the Bible with them, and fellowship with them. Now that's an excellent definition of discipleship. So in summary, a disciple is a believer, number one, believer in Jesus, a learner in the school of Jesus, one who's committed to the sacrificial life for Jesus' sake, and one who acts to fulfill the climactic obligation of discipleship, namely to make other disciples. So that is summarized in 2 Timothy 2.2. It says, And what you have heard from me, Paul's telling Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We're going to look at this passage in, in uh, the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, the first 12 verses. And I want you, as we read this, what caught my attention was this is how you make disciples. This is a, a look into how Paul, how Paul ministered to people. Not only that, it's a look into how Jesus ministered to people. Paul mimicked, imitated Jesus as they were witnessing, as they were ministering to people. So if you have your Bibles open, the first Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read the first 12 verses. It'll be up there, hopefully. Here we go. For yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated, shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error our impurity, or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God, who tests our heart. For we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as an apostle of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so, being effectually desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our contact toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. When Adam asked if which passage I would like to preach on, when I read that, I read through each of the passages that were possible. I read them, well that's 
That's a beautiful description of how disciples are made. It's a blueprint for disciple making. Remember when this takes place, a little review. Paul is in Thessalonica. He left Philippi under less than optimal circumstances. In Philippi, he had the conversion of Lydia. He cast out a demon from a fortune-telling slave. That slave owner got entirely incensed because his source of revenue was lost. Paul and Silas were put in prison. While in prison, a miracle took place, and the jail cells were thrown open, but they stayed there. Their shackles were released. They stayed there. The jailer was ready to commit, his, commit suicide because of the loss of those people. Um, that was the, the price that had to be paid as a jailer, but they were still there. The jailer was convinced of the lordship of Christ at that point and gave his life to Christ and his family also. They were going to then release Paul and Silas. But they said, wait a minute. We are Roman citizens and you've shamefully treated us. So they, uh, they were ushered out of town. They presented to Thessalonica. They were there after leaving Philippi. And while they were there, they were preaching the gospel. They went to the Jewish synagogues first and they were preaching the gospel. But the the people who caused the riot in Philippi followed them to Thessalonica and stirred those people up so that Paul and Silas and Timothy had to leave town and, and at night. Jason, who was one of their guys they were staying with, was left holding the bag. But they got away to go on towards um, Berea and ultimately to Corinth. And Paul, during this time, spending so little time with these people in, in Thessalonica, decided to write a letter to them because he was concerned about where they stood with Christ. John Scott Stott, a famous uh, British preacher and theologian, says, Paul is first and foremost a believer who is concerned to allow his beliefs to determine his actions. Again and again, he returns to the central verities of the Christian faith, that Christ died for our sins, that he was raised from the dead, and that he's coming back. So we see Paul presenting this information to these people in Thessalonica. What does Paul do as far as a disciple maker? What's the first thing that he does? We have to go back to last week's sermon and read the first few verses of, of 1 Thessalonians. He prays for his people. He prays and thanks God for them. Not only that, he remembers them that before God for their faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness, hope in Jesus. This is where we start. We pray for the people that God has put in touch with us. The people that we may be witnessing to, ministering to, discipling. Jesus did that very same thing in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. The high priestly prayer was, was he was praying for his disciples. But also he was praying for the people who the disciples would contact, who would preach to. And you know what? That includes us. Jesus was praying for us. He was praying for us that we'd be unified, that we'd be one. We pray for the people that we're going to minister to. First thing. Second thing that disciples do, or disciple makers do, 
is they proclaim the gospel. They proclaim the gospel with no fear and with boldness, even in the face of persecution and opposition. And we see that today. So when we hear that, the next question you have to ask, we ask, okay, what is a disciple? And then what is the gospel? So many surveys have taken place amongst Christian folks, asking them, what is the gospel? It's amazing how many people cannot tell you what the gospel is. So what was Paul proclaiming to these people? We need to know that the gospel is not some political or social issues. And in fact, the statement is I came up with is beware of anybody who's up here and gets on a soapbox about some issue rather than the person of Christ. So I'm going to quote a lot of verses from the Corinthians, first and second Corinthians, because it's kind of amplifying what Paul was saying in Thessalonians. Paul had got the letter out to the Thessalonians pretty quickly. And it was a short letter, really addressed to specific issues. He fleshes that out more in First and Second Corinthians. So here's what Paul says in First Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he raised, was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. Now, I've looked at several theologians' definition of the gospel, and D.A. Carson, a, another theologian, a contemporary theologian, says this about the gospel. The gospel is not the great commandment. The gospel is the good news that God is reconciling, reconciling sinners to himself through the substitutory death of Jesus. The heart of the gospel is what God has done in Jesus, supremely in his death and resurrection. It is not personal testimony about repentance. It is not a few words about our faith response. It's not about obedience. It's not about, it's not the cultural mandate or any other mandate. Repentance, faith, and obedience are, of course, essential, but they're not the good news. Lorraine Butler, another Reformed theologian from the middle of the 20th century, says the gospel is the good news about the great salvation purchased by Jesus Christ by which he reconciled sinful men to a holy God. Stephen Lawson, another contemporary theologian and pastor, says the gospel is the good news. It is the good news of salvation that has come from God in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to people who are under the wrath of God and who need deliverance. Also says, Paul says in this first Thessalonian passage that it doesn't spring from error. So we look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 14 and 15 it says, and if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. 
because we testified about God that he, was raised, that he has raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. It is not an error. The resurrection of Jesus is a hyster- hysterical, historical fact. It's not hysterical. It's historical fact. And we need to hear, we need to claim that. I mean, we need to be firmly founded in, in any, any confrontation or discussion we have about Christianity. That it's a fact that Jesus rose from the dead. The gospel was not out of impurity or any attempt to deceive. There's nothing devious about their methods. They made no attempt to induce conversions, for example, by concealing the cost of discipleship or offering fraudulent blessings. The message was true, his motives pure, and the methods were open and above board. And this, I think, hits home for us today. Has anybody... Have you ever been witness to somebody and kind of painted a rosy picture of their Christian life? We sometimes quote John 10.10, the thief comes only to kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Well, we think of that and we share that and go, ah, the Christian life is abundant. Yeah, it can be abundantly sorrowful, trying, testing, hardship, but we tend to promote that as, huh, when you become a Christian, all life is going to be good. It's a bowl of cherries. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever seen anybody promote that as a, as a thought for conversion? I have, and I probably used it myself. I remember being involved, I was at a training program in Gallup, New Mexico in 1970, so that's really how old I am. In 1970, I was at this, this, this uh, conference, or actually a training program all summer long, and during that summer program, the evangelists came to that small town of Gallup. Now, this is Gallup many, many years ago, and there was only one A&W root beer stand in town, <laughs> and there's much more there now. But at the, in the weekends, the Navos would come off the reservation and come to Gallup to shop and to buy the groceries and things. But they also come there to drink. And this evangelist came to town. They had this, this week-long evangelistic uh, revival. And they um, asked us, who were at this training program, to help promote the, the revival. And we'd go along and mention the, and ask the people who were in town to come to the meetings. And we had one fellow that they had witnessed to, and he came to the revival, and he gave his life to Christ, apparently. And a couple days later, he met us on the street and said, It's all false! Christianity is not true. And I think he was sold a bill of goods that once he became a Christian that things were beginning to be good immediately. So we, we need to be honest in our presentation of the gospel. We speak to please God, not man. God entrusted them with the gospel. Not with words of flattery, nor with a pretext for greed, not seeking glory from people. So flattery is used only here in the New Testament. And it expresses a tortuous method by which one person gains influence over another, generally for selfish ends. If you look at 2 Corinthians 2.17, it says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God. In the sight of God we speak in Christ. 
in four, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we are, but we renounce, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So you look at that tampering with God's word and tampering with the truth, and what came to my mind is you think about the prosperity gospel. So the prosperity gospel being preached that, that God loves you all, that he has wonderful things planned for your life. He has your, your health and wealth in mind, and all you need to do is come to my church and give me money. No, this is a prominent thought today about the prosperity gospel and how wrong it is. It's underhanded. It's disgraceful. In 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Then you have people like um, Charles Finney. Charles Finney was, in the, early, in the early part of the 19th century, was a Presbyterian minister, and he became convinced that if he could, if he could convince, coerce people to make a decision for Christ, that's what he needed to do, by any means possible. So he would... Um, he would have people sit on the a bench in front and he would, he would make them worried and make them concerned and would drive to get a decision. Not concerned about the activity of the Holy Spirit in that piece of person's life, but if he could be theatric enough, be convincing enough, if he could be condemning enough that we could, he could convince people to become Christ, it was a decision no matter how you got that decision. It was, was kind of like what was preached through many years. In fact, when I became a Christian, I was going to a church and they had a revival meeting. And the, the first night of the revival meeting, I've shared this before, was kids' night. So there was a gazillion kids in the, in the, at the church meeting that night. And this preacher preached this hellfire and brimstone message that convinced every kid in that congregation that if they left that auditorium without going forward and making a decision for Christ, they're going to get hit by a car, die, and go to hell. Well, that got, you know, all these kids, me and my two brothers, to come forward because we didn't want to go to hell. Now, did that conversion stick? Well, I certainly hope so. But that's not how we proclaim Christ today. It is true. It is true that if you die without Jesus, you're going to hell. But where would the love of Jesus come in there? Where would, where would the truth of the Christianity be in that, in that conversion? So, discipleship is you pray for people and you give them the gospel without all the other stuff that we tend to put with it. And the last thing for discipleship is you share your life with the people. And that perhaps is the hardest thing of all. 
there was a statement that we don't know who really said it, share the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Now, that's wrong. You'll never get the gospel if you don't hear the message of, of Jesus. And it has to be a verbal message. But it is right that we need to live in consistency with that thought. 2 Corinthians 4 or 5 says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. It goes on in this passage in 2 Timothy, We're gentle like a nursing mother caring for her own children, nurturing, feeding, caring for the needs of those God has given us. Being effectually desirous of them to share the gospel in their lives, sharing the gospel with family, friends, and those who come in contact for their salvation, for their eternal life, and their life now. Goes on to say, holy and righteous and blameless conduct toward the believers and unbelievers. How many times have you seen the gospel message discredited because of the lives of the people who claim to be Christians? You go, he's doing that? And he's a Christian? We encourage them. We encourage the people who come in contact that we're ministering to, that we're discipling, like a father with his children. You think about that role. What does a father do with his children? He he encourages, he instructs, he leads, he sets an example. This is what we're called to do. We are called to be disciple makers. And to be a disciple maker, first of all, you need to be a disciple. We need to pray for the people that God has placed in our way, in our, in our lives. We need to share God, the gospel with them in a straightforward manner, not getting distracted by secondary issues. And then probably the hardest thing of all is to share our life with these people. Usually my talks have, don't have a clear-cut application, but there's no, there's, this is an obvious application. This whole talk, this whole passage in, in the First Thessalonians chapter 2 is application. And we follow the order of Jesus' ministry, of Paul's ministry, should become the way we minister to people as a church and as individuals. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for this, this way that you've shown us how Jesus ministered us, how Paul ministered to his people, and how we are to minister to the folks that you've given us. God, I pray that this church may continue to minister to the folks in this way, that we as individuals can be disciples and disciple makers. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.